Welcome to the place where people of faith find real answers. We believe women deserve more than just religious band-aids for their most difficult and destructive relationships. And now for today's episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Hello, thank you for joining us. I'm Julie Sedenko, and I'm so excited about today's podcast. I had the privilege of interviewing Alicia in 2020. Her story, it's an appalling testimony, really, of sexual abuse at the hands of her husband, who also happened to be a pastor. And that's not all. I'll let her tell you more of that story. Alicia, welcome. It is really so good to see you again. Thank you. It is good to be here. Appreciate you having me. Well, before we get into your marital story, I want you to take us back to how you became paralyzed so people understand a little bit more of your story. So it was in 2009 and I was pregnant uh, with my last baby. He's baby number six and I was 20 weeks pregnant and I had contracted pink eye and I uh, one day was in a lot of pain. I felt like I was being shocked all over by little wires, like electricity just running through me. And I thought, wow, the baby must be laying on a nerve or something. And I had a friend over and asked her if she could watch my other children while I just went to take a nap. And she said, sure. And I did not wake up for 24 hours. And when I woke up, I was completely paralyzed. I couldn't move or feel anything from my chest down. My arms were very heavy, slow to move. And all the many hospitals and doctors later, I was diagnosed with idiopathic transverse myelitis, which is a big, long, fancy name. That means the virus had attacked my spinal cord and caused swelling. And that swelling had cut off the the life to my spinal cord. And so I'm considered an incomplete injury, which means uh, some nerve signals go through. So I have decent arm function. If I was a complete injury. I wouldn't be able to move my arms much at all. I was injured at the C5, C7 level. I do struggle still using my hands a lot and don't have a lot of strength in my arms, but I still am completely paralyzed from my chest down. Uh, I use a wheelchair full time, but it's okay. It's, it's a, it's a new life, but it's, it's been a good life. So on top of dealing with that, which I can't even imagine what kind of transition that is with a newborn, five other kids. Now you're in a wheelchair. You're a pastor's wife. Tell me how you began to find out that your marriage was not what you thought it was. From the moment we got married the first year, there were a lot of anger issues that you're always just trying to learn and try to do better and and realize what makes him mad and not. And then there were some seasons where he was better and it wasn't as bad. So I can see in retrospect, a lot of that I know was pornography driven. And I did not know that then. I just... um always tried to figure it out, not to make him mad. So it was after paralysis when uh, he was caught the first time. And then there was another time. And then because I was now paralyzed and didn't have sensation, there were many things that happened to me without my permission at night that were very cruel and very abusive. And it had never surfaced until I didn't have sensation. And that was taken advantage of at that time. So it was really after paralysis. And I was told it all started with paralysis. And so that led me to a lot of guilt, I think. He's blaming his behavior on your paralysis. Is that what he did? And he would say, it's not that you're not enough. It's just, you know, I'm not handling it well. And this is what I'm turning to. It was basically like his way of trying to cope. He always made it sound like, 
oh, it's not you, it's me, but it definitely was because of my paralysis. And so on my perspective, I'm thinking I can never tell him no, I can never cross him. I have to give him his way because if not, I'm going to, I'm going to drive him right back into the arms of porn because it's my disability that led this and brought him to this. He would even quote scripture to you, didn't he? Oh yeah. If he didn't get his way, I was a feminist. He would quote the passage about defrauding him unless we both agreed. I was not being biblical. He would tell me, of course, quote about being a submissive wife and how he was the head of the home and men had the stronger sex drive and whoever had the weaker sex drive was supposed to submit to the one who had the stronger sex drive. And it would happen over and over. He couldn't just say the sentence one time. He would say the same sentence over till three and four o'clock in the morning. And uh, I mean, it was, it was horrific. It was, and, and it would normally ended with, I don't even want to live and suicidal thoughts. And that just happened so just so many times over because, and over and over. Because he wouldn't, you wouldn't have sex with him. He was suddenly suicidal. Yes. If I would ask if we could cuddle, or maybe I had a, a lot of horrific nerve pain and felt horrible. Can we just not be that way? Can we just enjoy each other? I'm just in a lot of pain tonight. And it was just like, he always had reasons why it wouldn't be too bad. Talk me out. Try to talk me out of it. And then if I, if I ever tried to truly stand up, he would just let me like start to go to sleep. And then he'd like start pecking on my shoulder super hard and say, Lisha, 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 wake up, wake up. And I'd be like, what? And he'd be like, how can you lay there and go to sleep? How can you do that? How can you just go to sleep? Like you don't even love me. And you're so cruel. I'm so miserable over here. And, and then it would start over and I would just beg him, please. And then I'd start calling me all these names and can we please just disagree and go to sleep? And it was never enough. And it would end with him always jumping out of bed, running outside, declaring that he wished he could die. And, and I would lay there and cry thinking, am I going to hear a gun go off? He had an outdoor office and then he would always run out there and it just happened so many times. So you eventually just sell your soul because it's, I'm going to suffer either way. And so there were many times he would be with me and I would lay there crying. I was in so much pain. It's not like you were starving the guy because you kind of fell for a big lie that a lot of Christian women believe that you know, if you would just be available to your man whenever he wants it, that he wouldn't turn to porn or to other women. Well, I was raised with that mentality that when you feed a man at home, he'll never be hungry. And man, I owned it. So every time he wanted to have sex and he had a very high sex drive and we were together for years, probably every single night. Now I, we couldn't have sex for a little while because I had, I was paralyzed and then I had a baby and I had a C-section. Then I had a hematoma and that whole incision blew out about six inches deep. And then I had wound care. I was in a hospital bed in my living room with a home healthcare nurse for three months. And there was a period of time there from a man that had it every day to, I couldn't. And so I guess that's why I bought the pornography story, you know, that if ever there was a time he might be tempted, I get it. You know, I was so empathetic to that. And if that had been it and the only it, we could have moved on. Because you, did, it you discovered it. Isn't that right? Yes. I discovered it when I was actually out of town uh, visiting my parents. And we already had clean internet and stuff like that installed on our computers. Just because we had children, I just always wanted to be careful for me, for any of us. And I started getting these giant reports coming through the email of everything he was into. And so that was the first time I confronted him with it. And he lied and um, held the lie until I printed off everything and presented it. And then he repented, crying, weeping on his knees, begging me to forgive him, told me he didn't even get into it. They wouldn't let him. He just tried. And I bought that story hook, line and sinker. And then the second time it happened, it was the same scenario, lying, 
And then until proof hit him in the face and then same thing down on his knees, begging, crying, asking for forgiveness. And that one, I was a little more taken back. And then he started doing the things to me in the night times. And you would basically wake up to him raping you. Is that too strong? No, it's not too strong. He would rape me. I couldn't even let him do my stretches or anything like that because he could not keep his hands out of certain body parts of me. It was very abusive. The hurtful, damaging part with that, that has really hit me harder later on than even at that time was the fact that it was because I was paralyzed. The very thing he was using to say caused it was the very thing he took advantage of to whatever was going on in him. That was so cruel. It was almost like, I can't help it. I'm this way because of your disability, but because you are now watch what I get to do to you. And, and that feels so a whole new level of cruel because it really worked. <laughs> it kept me very much under his control because I was too scared. I didn't want to be, ever be the reason that drove him to that. So it really led me to being silent, which part of growing up and never telling your husband, no, you can appeal, but ultimately it's always what he says and what he wants, keeping him fed. Like you said, all of those things working together is very fear mongering. It's like that subject is what's going to rank or break this marriage. And so you didn't really have recourse either. I mean, he was the pastor, right? And I had asked him if I could reach out to somebody for help. And I was threatened. You cannot do that. How dare you ever tell them they'll never look at me the same again. I can't believe you'd want to ruin my reputation. I mean, there was a lot. And even to the point of, you know, I I had a friend that was going through with her own husband, some issues, and she would call me and, and just weep. And I felt like such a, a liar comforting her with the best that I knew and would try to comfort myself with. But I just craved telling her, I get it. I'm in this boat with you that she needed that for me. And I begged him, let's go talk with them, partner up with her husband. Y'all can help each other and we can all be helping each other. And I was threatened within an inch of my life. You ever want her to be your friend? You will not. I will shut it down. You will never go see her again. You will never be with her again. You will never talk to her again. So that, that was the recourse was to get punished. And I, you know, you can't cross your husband. So if I tell my parents, I'll never be allowed to see him again. If I tell my friends or anybody, so yeah, you, it was a very helpless situation. Like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. What was it like to sit there in church and watch him preach when he had basically just raped you the night before? Well, he would always apologize the next morning. You know, it was always a, can I get you breakfast? Can I take you out or be real sweet or bring me breakfast in bed? There was always this, you know, the abuse cycle. There was always the love bombing that followed that. And it was typically like, I'm really sorry. Um, I shouldn't have done that. I know it upset you. So let's just make sure we have a good day today. Okay. So you're not going to be mad at me. I have that image in my head so many times when he'd walk to the door, put his hand up on the wall and say, listen, he'd turn around and give that little speech and let's just have a good day. So you're not going to be mad about this all day. Are you, you're not going to make this a hard day for us. And so again, I felt like the wicked witch towards the end, I got braver and I would say, no, I don't want to do that. And I'm not okay. And it was pretty much met with really for real, you're going to have unforgiveness and where's grace. I thought you love Jesus. And I thought you were this Christian. It's funny to me that you would claim all this and want to go teach all this. And you can't even give grace and forgiveness to your own husband. I can't believe you're going to give us a hard day and act like this today. 
So then I'm gilded every way I turned. It was a horrible mess. I never knew where I'm supposed to be to stay right with God. Because if I stand up for myself, because God doesn't like people being treated like this. But then the other side is, am I, am I unforgiving? Am I not giving grace? Am I being unmerciful? Am I being like Jesus? And really that's where Leslie's teachings really help set me free. So obviously your husband had some really, really serious issues and he was not going to change. How did you begin to wake up to that reality and take ownership of your life and what you were going to do about it? Well, I started just Googling to try to find help. As I Googled how to deal with a husband, a pastor husband in pornography, continued pornography, anger issues, whatever. Her blog kept coming up in the Google results. And so I started reading her blog and then I signed up for her newsletter and I could not wait every month for that to come in because there were always nuggets that just blessed me and helped me in that moment. God just seemed like whatever I needed right then, it came through the blog at that moment. And she so powerfully uses scripture and I'm so moved by scripture. And I was reading a lot of other counselors out there, even Christian psychologists and things that had opinions, but what they lacked was a lot of God's word. And that's what I needed. One of the things that really helped me was when she talked about, because it had been used against me, was about not returning evil for evil, how we're to do good to those that despitefully use us. I know that scripture. So those would be the things that would drive me when he would say, I can't believe you're not going to forgive me or show me grace. You're supposed to do good. And he wouldn't say because I'm evil because he wouldn't admit that he was evil. But that's in my head, the scripture I would go to. I need to do good for his evil. And when she taught about what that means is evil is like a poison dart that shoots in you and that evil starts spreading in you and you want to return that evil You can't do enough good to change evildoers because God is good. And if that was the case, there would be no evil on this earth because God is good. And so, but that's not what it is. It's that Jesus Christ is good and Jesus in you can help you not return evil for evil and give you that strength. And that, that somehow did something in me that helped me see that doing good to evildoers was not me being nice and trying to do a kind deed because he had been evil to me, but was relying on Jesus not to return his evil upon him, which I was very tempted to do many times. Well, I'm tempted to do it right now, just hearing your story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's hard not to to feel angry just listening to what you went through, honestly. And I know Wesley also talks about doing good to somebody isn't necessarily enabling them to continue abusing you. Right. And she, the, the, the whole talk she does on clothing yourself with strength and dignity. I mean, I was raised very conservatively and we had to memorize Proverbs 31, all about the virtuous woman and learn to cook and sew and be that perfect little housewife, which is fine. But that part of it had never been taught to me that you put on strength and dignity. That's the first apparel she wore and to be dignified and that I could be a respectful person, not because that person earns or deserves my respect, but because I respect me and I'm a dignified person and I have strength from the goodness of Jesus that does not make me have to be like that person. 
So that helped me. And then ultimately where she talks about staying well or leaving well, you have to decide. And it, it boiled down to me that I had to work on changing me. There was nothing I could do to change him. And I had patterns that I did every time, like believe him, take him back, do the same roller coaster, the same dance that she talks about. Somebody's got to, to change the dance. To me, it doesn't seem like you had a whole lot of problems other than your husband. And if your husband would just get himself straight, everything would be fine. But obviously you can't control that. So what issues did you see in yourself and work on? I saw my empathy was really... <laughs> we can use the word paralyzing because it was holding me to a position of where I enabled him. I tried so much to put myself in his position when in reality, many of his positions had nothing to do with me. They had to do with him and they had to do with whatever reason, whatever background story, whatever horrors. I don't know what, I don't know that I've ever known the truth of his whole entire life. And the empathetic person in me wants to say, I'm sad for you. I'm sad for whatever it is in your life that has created this monster. But when the monster is attacking you, I can lay there and feel sorry for you all day long, but you're going to kill me. I was having double vision. My hair was falling out. My health was going to pot. Our home life was so stressful. It was unbelievable. I was upset all the time because of the stuff my children was witnessing. My kids were upset. They were begging me to leave their father. I mean, these were some serious, serious things. Counselors, the two male counselors in my life, one, a pastor friend, former pastor friend, and then a Christian licensed Christian counselor, horrible counsel, horrible counsel. Stay. We're begging you. Are you trying to become the Holy Spirit? One of them said that to me and I believe God gave me wisdom. Then I said, I'm not leaving it to you or to me or to the other counselor. There is only one person that wants to change him, and that's Jesus Christ. But he has to let him. To become strong and go against that was very hard for me. Very hard. How did you um, go about doing that? Prayer. Lots of time with the Lord. And, of course, the counseling. I joined the Conquer Group and was learning a lot through that. And all the modules and and this is not a shameless plug, although I hope it is, but it's just the truth that helped me in the in the support system and being able to ask questions and just keeping my mind on truth, which is what she says, instead of on what you wish could be. So the enabling, the empathy to a fault. And I think that's one of the cores, right? If, to be empathetic without enabling. And I didn't know how to do that. To how to stand in truth and not what you wish could be. And I didn't know that I was not doing that. I wasn't living in reality. I do feel like I was open to teaching. So I feel like I had that one down. For those of you who may be thinking, what is she talking about? A large part of the work that we do in Conquer has to do with the acronym CORE. C is being committed to truth, to reality. No more pretending. Oh, I will be open to the Holy Spirit and wise others to teach me new ways of thinking, feeling, and responding. R, I will be responsible for myself and respectful towards others without dishonoring myself. E, I will be empathic and compassionate towards others without enabling abusive behavior to continue. Yes. Okay. And that was where I realized every choice he makes puts a spotlight in my life on what I need to do next. So if I gave him a, a grace space for something... And he goes in and does just the opposite and follows his same pattern. It told me that can't happen any longer. 
So he doesn't get that gray space anymore. And I'm not talking about little mistakes. I'm talking about major trust violations, physical, sexual abuse violations, those kind of things. You had a chance. It's gone. We're moving to a new level. But he triggered that every time. And so instead of falling back to the same pattern of, well, he said he was sorry and he really means it. And I really hope he does this time. That's that not living in reality, because that's why you go back in that cycle, because you're wanting to live in the what you wish and dreaming for. And which is doesn't make you crazy. It makes them awful that they wouldn't be glad they had somebody like that. Right. So but you don't live in you're not living in truth. And so to say, I'm sorry you made that choice. But now that you have here is what I know I must do next. And that started one little increment at a time. It started with, he would lie to our counselor. He would be outright lying. And so I let that go a couple times. And then I finally, my next step, because he will not quit lying openly. Then I said, I will no longer go with you. I'll go to the counselor by myself, but I'll no longer go with you. And I told the counselor, I will not come with him anymore because it doesn't do any good. We cannot get anywhere if we cannot have truth in this room. So that's what I'm saying. Little baby step after little baby step of whatever we had. If you're not going to respect and be honest and open in this, you're not sincere. And I can't walk in insincerity any longer. So I'm going to make the next move to get me safer. And it was little increments. I know that clarity is a big first step in in our conquer group, becoming clear on your situation. But I, I would say for you, I mean, it's scary for everybody. But here you're a woman in a wheelchair. And it's not like you have, you know, this huge trust fund that you're going to get if you leave him. You're married to a pastor. You're not going to have a lot of alimony and support and all that to support you. That had to be really scary and play into your decision of, can I leave? Oh, it was awful. And he constantly said that to me. You will never, never make it without me he would tell me that I was naive and I had not grown up in the real world and I had no idea about it and I would never make it. And of course my disability, I would never make it. And, and I, I did struggle with that. Like he's probably right. He's probably right. But in my mind, I'm not making it now. I think I'm going to die. Like I really thought, I think I'm just going to crash and it's just going to be over for me. And it wasn't that I wanted to die. It wasn't that I was suicidal. It wasn't that I just, I felt my health and I was seeing the physical manifestation of what I was living with. And I didn't think that was very fair to me, to my children. And so I thought, I don't know how we'll make it, but we're not making it now. But I was terrified. And I, I really didn't know if I could physically do it. I, I struggle, you know, for independence and to make, get up myself and dress myself and get through my day by myself. And honestly, still to this day, if you ask me, what is your greatest fear? My greatest fear is all my children not living in my house and me being at home alone all the time. And it's not that I'm lonely. It's not just that. It's just, what if I fall in my shower? Who's going to be around to yell for? And what if I, there's so many what ifs, you know, and it's just like, I just can't do that. I'm not going to do that. We're going to take one day at a time. And that's what I prayed and told the Lord. I told him, I'm going to take every move you ask me to make and I'll obey you. Make it clear and I'll obey you no matter how terrified I am. And then you have promised you will not let the see the righteous forsaken. So you're going to have to come through for me. And he has. He has. How did you finally decide I'm going to leave and follow through with that? He took money from our church. And three weeks before that, I had said to him, 
I think you married a girl that wanted nothing but to be a wife and a mama. That's true. I think you married a girl that wanted to do anything to have a godly legacy. That's true. All these things. And I pretty much told him, that's not the girl anymore. If you do one more thing that breaks our marriage trust, you're going to see a different response. He said, I believe that's true too. And it wasn't three weeks later, he taken money from our church. I felt like he left our marriage and he got in something that belonged to God now. And that is not going to go down with me at all. I am not walking with you and anything you're dealing with God's house and God's people and God's church. No, sir. And I just told him, I can't make you resign. We've begged for a year to resign and work on you and get things better. And you won't. So I can't control you. And here we go again. I felt like I'd given him that great space, right? And told him, you're going to see a different girl. And he even agreed. And then three weeks later, here's what he did. And so my, my next step now then is, okay, I have nothing to do with your decision. I have to make a decision for me now. Because you've done this, what is my move? Not your move. What is my move? And my decision was the children and I will no longer attend church with you. I will not walk with you and enable your hypocrisy as a pastor. You can lie. You can tell this church whatever you want, but the kids and I will be no part of it. So he said, by default, I made him resign. He did resign. And then he left and went to his parents. I offered him a space of grace to move to a different state with us near my brother where my kids and I would be safe. But we would surround him if he would get all the help he said he needed. And I would not take one more ounce of abuse. I would kick him out the first sign of abuse. And he chose not to do that. And so after that, I wrote him a letter two weeks later and told him, because you chose not to do that when it was gifted to you, you are no longer welcome back at all until we see fruits of you doing everything you say you sincerely want to do. And there has been nothing. There was nothing that whole time. No financial support that whole time. Nothing. So by November, another space of grace, I said to him, he left in January. By November, I said, you have to help with the kids with child support. So let's just get the state to settle it. I won't decide a number. You don't decide a number, but you've got to help financially. And he said, it'll take a quarter of a judge for that to happen. And that was in my mind. There we go again. Okay. And God said, go file for divorce. I filed the next day and our divorce was final by March. So I just, that's what my point is. I feel like every time. He made a choice through all of that. The what I did internally was stop trying to get him to quit making bad choices. And what I changed was teaching me to make healthy choices for me and my children. And so every time he made a bad one, it was no longer, why did you do this? What are we going to do? What are you going to promise to never do again? All these things. Or how about we set up this system to help you not do this again? I was done with that for an entire year, but I knew what I had to do. Every time was a new step for me. And that's what Leslie helped me learn. The dance has to change. My patterns had to change. He didn't act any different than he'd acted for 10 years, but I did. And not too long ago, he was not happy with me about a decision the kids had made. And I was letting him know, which he always gets mad at me when they make the decision because he doesn't want to be mad at them. But he said to me, his last sentence was, I don't even know you anymore. And my first reaction was, well, hallelujah, because this is not the girl that I used to be. And I think that has been the biggest, most terrifying and exhilarating part of this entire journey was I have had to reinvent myself when there is no other choice left. There's a reserve in you that you don't even know exists, but it's there. And the Lord is there to strength with that strength and honor. She talks about the strength and dignity. When Jesus is in you, we have God in us. That's powerful. And to 
step back and say, I got to reinvent myself. I've been a stay-at-home wife and mom, never had a career. And now I'm responsible for five children, keeping a roof over our heads. I have not missed one bill. My sons have not had to help me pay one bill. God has provided over and over. I've asked him, I said, God, you know my abilities. You know my disabilities. You know what I can do. You know what I can't do. You know what my health will allow. Just provide opportunities. I'll learn. I'll do anything. Just show me. And God has opened one door after another to just be able to do what I need to do and provide for this family. And we are not rolling in money, but we are not starving. God has taken care of us. But the reinventing yourself in that reserve that you did not know was there. It's finally because you you discover this woman that finally in a healthy environment can bloom to full potential. And that has been quite a ride. It's fun to think where you were and what God has done. And it is a horrible valley of shadow of death, the death of marriage. It is. But boy, you are heading to greener pastures. So not by yourself. It's through Jesus. But if you'll just trust the journey, trust the process, it will very much be worth it. That's an amazing story, Alicia. It really is. It's God, Julie. It really is God. Would you pray for anyone in a similar situation? Maybe it's a pastor's wife who feels stuck or a woman with health issues who doesn't feel capable of leaving a destructive marriage. Would you just for a moment, bring our listeners to the Lord in prayer? Sure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful that you are El Roy, the God who sees. And what a comfort to know, Lord, that when when we are in these horrific places and feel so hopeless and so helpless and not knowing where to turn, that you are the God who sees. And Father, we thank you for loving your girls. Thank you, Lord, for knowing where we are. And Father, I think there's a movement right now across our country where you have heard the cry. You have heard the cry of so many oppressed and you are you are moving. And Father, that's exciting. That's exciting to know that you are a God who not only sees, but you are acting, you're moving and doing for us to protect us because you love us. And Father, my prayer right now is that you would grant strength into trembling, trembling hearts. And you would give courage where fear is reigning. And you would give vision, Father, for a different perspective than the boxes that held us captive for so long. So, Father, I pray for any listener today, Lord, if she is sitting here crying and weeping, as I'm sure I have done many times, uh, that you will help her to reach out for help and guidance and find a band, Lord, of women that will help her on this journey. But, Lord, most of all, that she can cry out to you. And Lord, I believe with all my heart that you know the thoughts and intents of our heart. And I know that when you know that we will obey you, you will guide us every step of the way. You will guide us. So help us to be seekers of your heart. Thank you that your heart is for us. And Father, then help us to walk in obedience to the path of freedom you're trying to lead us to. And help us to trust you through that journey. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Alicia, thank you for sharing your story once again. I'm thankful not only to get the opportunity to visit with you today, but to call you a friend 
you really are an inspiration. And I know that many women have been blessed by your testimony today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's all for today's episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. If you found it helpful, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Also, for more help and resources, please visit leslievernick.com. And we'll see you next time on Relationship Truth Unfiltered.